Has it occurred to any of you that your buddy's actually going to cause the thing he says he's trying to prevent? Perhaps that little new is the incident. So maybe the best thing to do is nothing? I'm glad you all thought this through. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 517 entitled The Incident Part 2. This is the 103rd episode of the series and there are 18 to go. As always, a quick feedback reminder, you can always say hello to me on Twitter where I am Looking Back Lost, send an email to Looking Back at Lost at gmail.com, leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com, or lastly, leave a message on the listener line, tended by those trusty Google robots, 732-707-1815. And on the topic of uh, some feedback, we have uh, a couple of communiques. The first is an email from Marty. Marty says, hey Matt, long time no speak, still working on my way through your backlog, and now only eight episodes behind currently listening to your life and death Jeremy Bentham episode. I think I finally have something to say. I'll pause Marty's commentary here just for a moment to say excellent timing on his part, especially given that, uh, you know, uh, we see Locke's death in the, in that episode. And then Locke's death is uh, confirmed in uh, tonight's entry incident part two. Anyhow, Marty goes on to say in your search for a way to refer to John Locke after his body is assumed by Smokey, it got me thinking about who he really is. The natural obvious answer is that it's the man in black, the brother of Jacob. We see his origins in Across the Sea. We see, uh, when we see the smoky emerge from the cave, Jacob's brother's body actually flows out the other side. So in all the instances where Smokey appears as someone else, he's not inhabiting the physical body of the person, he's recreating their appearance. Therefore, the same thing happened to MIB, also happened to Christian, Alex, Yemi, and Locke. It's the concentrated malevolence of the island, kind of like the concentrated evil from Time Bandits, one of my favorite movies. Marty goes on to say it's not the wayward spirit of Jacob's brother. This concentration of all that is dark and evil has no self-awareness in and of itself and draws its identity from the corporeal host whereby it obtains their memories and life experiences, not to mention their wants and desires. If it had been left alone undisturbed in the heart of the island, it would have remained unaware and unreleased without want, need, ambition, and most importantly, without identity. It's the unfortunate blending of extreme wickedness and humanity that triggers the birth of the smoke monster. In conclusion, under the assumption I haven't missed the boat here, says Marty, you would be most accurate by referencing Smoky Lock, as the accidental self-awareness of the island's malevolence, a Siam for short. <laughs> Marty starts to wrap up by saying something tells me that this probably won't catch on, but I wanted to write this out uh, when I thought of it. I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of it this way. But it was like suddenly a light came on way too late. So with that, thank you very, very much, Marty, for uh, definitely a thought-provoking message there. It certainly is a theory that I have not heard before. 
I will respectfully disagree. Uh, well, first, let me start out by agreeing. Yes, we do see uh, the body of Jacob's brother come out uh, of the uh, of the source uh, shortly before seeing the smoke the first time. I took that merely just to be. I mean, obviously, it's it, it's his physical death, um, but I took it to be. I took it to be the transformation of of uh, Jacob's brother into his very worst. He's been he's received the power of the island, and like so much other power, uh, power is not inherently good or evil. It, it just exists, and it's uh, it's those who use it who determine whether it's good or evil. We have Jacob presented uh, as the good brother. It's, uh, as I said last week, it's something that is hammered home in uh, how Jacob is presented in terms of his costume, his, you know, the, the, he's dressed in, in lighter colors, um, the casting of the actor to have lighter hair, uh, and then the opposite for a man in black to be dressed literally in dark colors and dark hair. Um, I just think that, um, I think it still is Jacob's brother I, uh, now. Why is it that he does take these different forms? Well, he is this smoke form. It's kind of this this um, shapeless rage. But uh, he is able to to take the different forms of these people. All of them, I believe, let's go through the list here. Christian, dead body on the island. Alex, dead body on the island. She's buried. Let's not forget the Ben line. Uh, I'd like to bury my daughter. Yemi, most certainly <laughs> dead on the island. And, of course, Locke's body is... Uh, is on the island, and to my knowledge, we don't see dead. Uh, pardon me, we don't see Smokey Lock until uh, until uh, Lock's body has returned. They might say, "Well, what about the horse, Kate's horse?" All right, I don't have an answer for that. Perhaps a horse died on the island once, which is not that unreasonable. Um, there's all this other kitten caboodle that has ended up uh, on the island's shores, and. Um, He's just, you know, fashioned himself uh, to, to look like Kate's horse of her past. But um, definitely, definitely a thought-provoking uh, notion there, Marty. The idea of ASIM, the uh, accidental self-awareness of the island's benevolence. Um, but as I said, I will, uh, you know, I will accept that novel theory uh, on its uh, kind of based on its argument. But I will, I will disagree with the uh, with the conclusion. With that, after that uh, wonderful email from Marty, let's now take a listen to a voicemail. Hey, Matt. Hello, Lossies. Uh, this is Pat. And uh, I wanted to call on this uh, current episode with a, uh, another observation on uh, one of the characters, primarily Jack, uh, in this particular episode. What I noticed, uh, it was during the scene at the very beginning of the episode in the variable when uh, he and he and Kate were out in the woods, and uh, Faraday was uh, was having his uh, Mexican standoff with with Richard. And uh, I just noticed Jack, you know, he, he's he's at the point now where he's desperately uh, grasping onto the idea that okay, I I bought this plan, you know, we have to to blow up this bomb to save everybody, and uh, I'm I'm you know I need to convince Kate of this. Then, then the gun fires. He immediately, kind of, kind of like a dog hearing a noise, um, takes off to go fix it, uh, to go find out what's going on. There, there's no reaction on his part, you know, to say, 
oh, you know, who shot what? We we should run. We should duck. Where'd that come from? Who shot who? He, he immediately runs to do that. And, and what I identify with Jack, it's one of the reasons that, that I both love and hate him, because I identify with him. He has this desperate need to do. Uh, not only is he the man of science, but he's the man of action. Um, there's this hollowed-out portion inside of him, primarily from being told that he doesn't have what it takes by his father, which he's carried around his entire life. And all he can do is do things to, to form some sense of self-worth and identity in, in the universe. And he does this throughout the entire show. It's why we hate him, because he's always in a leadership position, because he's always doing things. But there's really nothing inside of him. There is no Jack inside. And uh, as a result of this, you know, this is part of, of his redemption uh, coming up here in, in the next uh, several episodes. We, we begin to see him... Uh, can be redeemed, and and the reason you know that I, that it really struck a chord with me is because I recognize that in myself. I, I do the same thing. I, I often you know formulate my self identity around what I do rather than what I am. So uh, just really stood out to me. Wanted to thank you again for the podcast. Uh, doing a great job. I, I enjoyed the look back on the uh, last episode, and uh, looking forward to going through the final season with you as well. Well, thank you once again, Pat, for calling in. So wonderful to hear from you again. Uh, I think that. You know, Pat absolutely hits the nail on the head. Uh, Jack is this hollowed out person. And I think it's it's always our instinct to want to trust him as the leader. We kind of have this instinctual this instinctual need for the leader. I don't want to say this need to be led because that undercuts the you know the collective uh, independence that we have. But I'm kind of somewhat reminded of the movie the queen where you know it's it's becoming clear that the monarchy is outdated and uh, no longer has a place in the modern world but at the very end we just want you know in the case of the queen we just want mom to tell us it's going to be okay we just want dad and jack to tell us it's going to be okay we want somebody who can you know who can who can be angry at us when we need it. We want somebody who can, uh, you know, take the take the fire, metaphorical or, or literal, uh, when we need protection. And that's the role that Jack has identified with. But is that who he is deep down? I don't think so. I don't think he knows who he is deep down. And uh, I absolutely, certainly agree uh, there with you, Pat, that um, we see so much in these episodes uh, still to come uh, that's about his redemption. I mean, for all the jokes in the past of Jack is wrong, Jack is wrong to go after uh, Ethan so quickly, Jack is wrong about the freighter people. Well, guess what? Jack is wrong about the bomb, too. The, it does not fix everything. In fact, if anything, and not to, not to spoil where, uh, you know, where this episode is headed, but well, we all, we all know where things end up, of course, it's kind of a little bit of a MacGuffin. It's a little bit of a fake in order to propel us to the flash sideways because we think the plane has landed, um, which, of course, is part of the narrative cheat that, uh, that, that Season 6 starts with, and we'll get there uh, in a couple weeks' time. But, you know, I, I completely agree that Jack is this hollowed-out person defined by his actions, not, that, not defined by the person that he is deep down. Anyhow, with that, let's now get into the Wikipedia summary for Incident Part 2. We start with flashbacks where, immediately after being pushed out of an eight-story window by his father, Locke apparently dies. Jacob arrives and touches him on the shoulder, and Locke reawakens. In another flashback, after performing his first solo surgery on a young girl, a story recounted in Pilot Part 1, Jack tries to buy a chocolate bar from a vending machine, but it gets stuck. 
Jack argues with his father for interrupting him during surgery. However, Jacob buys the same chocolate bar, and when two come out, he gives one to Jack. Also in another flashback, Hurley is visited after he is released from prison, in between the events of The Little Prince and 316. He meets Jacob, who tells him that he may not be cursed or crazy, but blessed, and that his ability to see dead people could be a gift. Jacob tells Hurley about Flight 316, giving him the choice of boarding it. Jacob leaves the guitar, guitar case behind for Hurley to take. In a flashback not featuring Jacob, Juliet's parents tell her they are getting divorced, greatly upsetting her. They claim that though they love each other, they were not meant to be together. In the 2007 portion of the story, shortly after Ben and Locke enter the chamber at the base of the statue's remains, Ilana's group arrives. She asks Richard the question, what lies in the shadow of the statue? And Richard replies in Latin, he who will save us all. Ilana reveals the contents of the crate, John Locke's dead body. Inside the chamber, Jacob deduces that Locke is really the man in black from the opening flashback and that he has tricked Ben into killing him. Ben stabs Jacob repeatedly and Jacob's final words are a warning to the man, they're coming. Locke's imposter then kicks Jacob's body into the fire and watches it burn. And for the 1977 portion of the story, Dr. Pierre Chang is forced to continue drilling into the energy source beneath the construction site of the Swan Station on the orders of Stuart Radzinski. Jack and Sawyer discuss the situation away from the other survivors, with Sawyer expressing his opinion that what's done is done, and they shouldn't try and change the past. Jack claims that it is his destiny to change the past, and that John Locke has always been right about the island. Jack and Sawyer get into a fistfight, which is broken up by Juliet, who now agrees with Jack that they must detonate the bomb. She tells Sawyer that although they love each other, they are not meant to be together, echoing her parents, and that if they never meet, then she will never have to lose him. With everyone now in agreement, Jack enters the construction site at the same time as security officer Phil arrives with a team of armed men. A massive gunfight ensues wherein the survivors gain the upper hand, allowing Jack to drop the bomb into the pit at the same time the drill hits the energy source. The nuke fails to go off and the pocket is breached, attracting every metal object in the area. In the ensuing chaos, Dr. Chang's arm is crushed by part of the drill mounting, Phil is stabbed by rebar, and Juliet is dragged into the chasm by a metal chain. Wow, this is a particularly well-written uh, summary there, Wikipedia. Sawyer attempts to pull her up in vain, and Juliet professes her love for him before falling. Juliet manages to survive the fall, albeit severely injured, and hits the nuclear core with a rock repeatedly, until the screen flashes to white and it appears that the bomb has been detonated. And with that rather rousing uh, summary there, let's get into my thoughts about the episode. The episode does, of course, pick up right after the part one climax. This episode, uh, you know, having been broadcast with part one on the same night. Uh, and of course, we have Sawyer, Juliet, and Kate refusing to get into the uh, the van. And uh, kind of despite the, you know, bleeding to death Saeed, uh, Sawyer demands five minutes with Jack. And Jack gives it, uh, which conveniently takes us to a medical flashback. But of course, not just any flashback. Dr. Shepard, you all right? The dural sac, I cut it. Give me some suction. Go 
Calm down. It's all right. The fluid, it's, it's leaking everywhere. I can't. Look at me. Give me some suction. Yes, doctor. Jack, look at me. Count to five. What are you talking about? I'm talking about you stitching up the sack so this girl isn't paralyzed for the rest of her life. And the only way you're going to do that is not to be afraid. So close your eyes, count to five, and then fix her, Jack. Or I'll have to fix her for you. One, two, three, four, five. You know, that clip is, I think, a statement of the show's appreciation of the fans. This is a scene that we heard about uh, all the way back in Jack's speech about Counting to Five right after the very first commercial break of the entire series. And it, it was an iconic speech, to be sure. But is it something that everyone would remember? Perhaps not everyone, but certainly enough of us. And despite our dislike for Christian, here he is steady and paternal in this scene, something echoed in the next scene where Jack has a hissy fit in the break room because the senior surgeon, Christian, helps Junior go from routine surgery to catastrophic mistake to solution by counting to five and calming down. That scene concludes with Jack being visited by Jacob uh, and getting help with the machine that almost stole his candy bar. Jacob's line, I guess all it needed was a little push, clearly is more... Uh, than uh, just applying to those Apollo bars, clearly a metaphor for what Jacob has been doing. And here it is in the center of uh, the incident as a two-hour episode. We've seen some Jacob flashbacks uh, previously. We'll see some more in uh, incident part two. Here we are smack dab in the middle. We've been wondering what is Jacob doing. Here's the answer. He's giving little pushes here and there, not not predestining people or giving people predestination, however the best way would be to word it, but just giving little pushes. That's what he has been doing and will be doing. Anyhow, flashback over. Sawyer and Jack have an island powwow about Sawyer's parents' death, every gory detail covered. And hey, we saw the funeral in, uh, in Incident Part 1. It's all told for a point, though. Sawyer is affirming that what's done is done. However, Jack, who now clearly has become a man of faith, affirms that this, of course, has got to be the right plan. And why? I had her. I had her, and I lost her. Well, damn, Doc, she's standing right on the other side of those trees. You want her back? Just go and ask her. No, it's too late for that. Five minutes is up. Jack, if what you're doing even works, you and Kate will be strangers. And she'll be in damn handcuffs. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. Well, I guess there's nothing I can say that's going to change your mind. Uh, I guess there's not. The hell you think you are? Is it slightly hackneyed? Perhaps. It's also a reminder that these characters are driven by, among other things, love. The fight that ensues is also a little elemental and familiar, but it's a seasoned finale, and the characters, I think, have earned this, particularly as Sawyer reminds Jack and us 
that Sawyer and his other half had a near perfect life in Dharmaville. And speaking of other halves, Juliet shows up, stops Jack's beating at Sawyer's hands, and says that she's changed her mind. With that, we have an act end, and it's not the greatest of them, but to be fair, it's not meant to be uh, a great act end, given that the ensuing title card wasn't there for the broadcast. Of course, it is now uh, for at least some of the home video version. I know with one of the previous season finales, um, people were were responding, uh, you know, on, on Netflix, it's this. I, of course, watched it on Netflix, uh, whereas on the DVD, it's that, but the Blu-ray is different, so whatever. Anyhow, after the, uh, after the title card, there's a quick flashback to girl Juliet hearing her parents are getting a divorce and a childish affirmation about staying together. A curious flashback, by the way, as the, uh, as the um, Wikipedia summary rightly noted, uh, it's without Jacob. And I don't, I don't understand why it's here. I mean, yes, it's, I suppose, to kind of give Juliet some uh, last-minute justification for the decisions that she makes, uh, although it doesn't, I don't know, as we'll discuss, it's not a particularly strong patch that we're headed towards with, uh, with old Jules here. And indeed, the story heads back to adult Juliet, explaining that she changed her mind when <sighs> she saw Sawyer looking at Kate. Things quickly descend into color by numbers in a trite scene. I loved you for a little while, and it was good while it lasted, but maybe it wasn't meant to be, etc. It's a weak capper from Juliet as to why helping Jack is a good idea, and it's furthered. Uh, by uh, Juliet saying, if I never meet you, then I never have to lose you. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Not good. Not a good moment. Not for the strong and mighty Juliet, who has been so capable, so uh, so flexible, the ability to, to adapt to all these different situations, to uh, working for Middle East Bioscience, and then maybe going to this island and then being stuck there and then making the best of that and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's never good, particularly for a female character when uh, the stereotype is returned to. And I feel like here, that's what's happening. Yes, they need to get to uh, an end point where she's willing to literally let go, uh, you know, at the Swan uh, work site, but it's not an elegant way that they take her there. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to more urgent stuff. That swan build site, with Chang declaring all hell is about to break loose and Rydzinski ready to drill into the pocket of energy. The scene ends with old Stu calling for more men and guns, saying, if they're coming here, we'll be ready. Cut to Jack, already there. He's beyond the tree line. Unfortunately, Jack is joined by Kate, who quickly turns the scene into a restatement of the central theme. She came to get Claire, remember her? Uh, and Jack saying that all needs to be reset nonetheless. Further, Kate folds like a cheap table, and uh, just as soon as Jack asks if uh, she's with him, she says yes. At that point, we have an act break, and uh, we have... Curly being discharged from not having killed anyone and stepping out into a cab and making a new friend. By the way, if you haven't figured things out uh, thus far, this is going to be a uh, 
a clip-heavy podcast. I would dare say uh, more uh, more clip seconds, more clip minutes uh, in this particular podcast than uh, all the previous ones. But uh, with that in mind, here's Hurley and his new friend. What about you? Well, I wasn't in jail. Well, then what were you doing sitting outside a prison in a cab? I was waiting for you, Hugo. Oh. Then you must be dead. I'm definitely not dead. What do you want from me? I want to know why you won't go back to the island. Because I'm cursed? Is that so? Uh Uh-huh. That's why the plane crashed, my friends died, Libby, Charlie, and now they visit me, and I can't make it stop. What if you weren't cursed? What if you were blessed? How do you mean blessed? Well, you get to talk to the people you've lost? It seems like a pretty wonderful thing to me. Sure, it's wonderful, except for the part where I'm crazy. I've got some news for you, Hugo, and you're just going to have to take my word on this. You are not crazy. Who are you, dude? I'm just up here on the corner. Nigeria Airways Flight 316 out of LAX. It leaves in 24 hours. All you have to do is be on that plane. It's your choice, Hugo. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. You know, in re-listening to that clip, I'm reminded of having read something online in the last month that uh, basically said that it was in response to some study, I believe, that said that the most effective way to uh, convince someone to do something is to state the case, uh, you know, kind of with with passion, uh, not feel as though you're forcing them to do it, and then to include a statement it's up to you, or it is your choice, or that sort of thing. Not even, I know you will make the right choice, because that's suggestive of, I know you will choose my side. To to push, 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 and then the last thing you leave them with is some sort of statement, um, not as aggrandizing as I'm going to summarize it, but, you know, the decision is entirely in your hands. Um because this empowers people to then say, well, I'm making the choice to do what you said. Um, I wonder if Jacob's doing that there. Perhaps uh, perhaps he was aware of the study. I don't know. Uh, at any rate, the scene certainly is critical. And I think that you can see the rest of the series through that scene. Jacob making a personal plea to Hurley. Uh, Hurley being the future, quote, Jacob. Uh, and the plea to return to the island. Yes, at this point, Hurley is just a candidate, the same as the others. But he's getting the special island push from the main man himself. Other people have gotten the push earlier in life. My point is, here Jacob is saying, just come back, let's see what happens. The scene also makes a point to show the transfer of that mysterious, pesky guitar case from Jacob. uh, And something that we've seen in every Ajira uh, scene. something that we've seen in most of the post-Jira scenes, certainly, um, you know, Hurley post-re-arrival on the island, leaving um, leaving uh, Dharmaville with it. Um, 
something to be opened to rather, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, disappointing climax in season six. Perhaps the rewatch will reveal some some clues that I don't remember from back in uh, back in 2010. But anyhow, with that, the story returns to the Dharma van where Saeed repeats uh, the vol- you know, speaking of the volatility of the bomb and concludes that nothing will save him. This is a delicious, dark bit of uh, commentary and foreshadowing from a man who not only feels that he is dying, but I think there's also the suggestion that he feels that he's had a life not worth living. With that, Jack heads out uh, with kind of powering up Giacchino music that's building, 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 as Jack nods goodbyes to Kate and all and tells Sawyer, I'll see you in Los Angeles. More seating, of course, for that flash sideways. That we have an act break, then uh, Smokey Locke and his group have stopped. Why? asks Locke. You'll see, says Richard, which actually is just a handy excuse for the camera to wheel around, revealing the famous, been here since the end of season one foot. Well, uh, why are they there? It's where Jacob lives, we are told. It's this triumphant moment. We are in the, the last hour of the season, of course. There's a slight look of disappointment, by the way, at this point. The look of disappointment is on Smokey's face. It is disappointment in himself. You can almost hear him thinking, I should have gone to the most obvious place. With that, uh, we flash back to a very quiet, very still scene in what I am sure is a familiar background, a background that when last we saw it, it finally answered one of the earliest questions of the show. In the foreground, we have Jacob reading a book. In the background, an office building or or a tower. I suppose there's there's one man's apartment or condo in there. Um, There's excellent composition to the shot. The camera dollying back, giving enough room for Locke's zooming body to fall and land behind Jacob. It's a moment that is suggestive of the violence of it, but shows none of it on network TV. It doesn't show the impact, merely shows the fall. Others are shocked. However, Jacob calmly closes that book and walks up and grabs Locke. And as the, uh, you know, as I'm sure jumped out uh, to, to everyone watching, Locke wakes up once grabbed. I think here the question is, is Jacob waking up Locke or is he bringing him back to life? I don't know that I can be sure one way or the other. It certainly appears that he is somehow bringing him back to life, somehow returning some spark into him. Um, perhaps there's even the notion that, you know, it's not Locke's time. Um, is it an affirmation of destiny? Perhaps. It also could just be the hand of another human being, uh, such as Jacob is, felt by Locke in this uh, moment of need. Anyhow, with that, flashback over. For the first-time viewer, I think, there's a little bit of this question that's building uh, in the first-time viewer mind. It's part of the the construct of the episode. I think the question is this. So when a live lock sees Jacob, won't he recognize him as the nice man who helped him? And uh, and then perhaps Locke uh, will, will try not to kill him? It's just adding to the redirect, of course, of, of the, uh, the revelation of uh, Locke's death. 
Anyhow, it is at this point uh, night outside the foot. Sun asks the question as to why it's just a foot. Ben says it's always been that way his whole life. And although Sun doesn't believe him, it is, of course, an ironic statement because it's very true, as we will learn next season. At this point, Richard and Smokey Locke go to enter, with Locke muscling Ben into uh, coming in with him, despite Richard claiming that such a thing is just simply not done. Now, I'll confess that at this point in the episode, we are, at least in the, uh, you know, in the Lost episode, we are at the halfway mark, or rather just past it, halfway of part two anyway. For them to be entering the statue at this point surprised me, because there is still so much story ahead, uh, you know, about 20 minutes of story ahead. It's just, it, it's, it's astonishing how much there is. Uh, granted, much of it uh, uh, at the, uh, the Swan worksite, but just a wonderful, a wonderful stretch of story ahead for us. And indeed, once they are just inside, Smokey reminds Ben that things will be different when Jacob is gone, and with that, hands Ben the knife. Now, to me, it was slightly evocative of when Smokey Christian um, would not help up uh, the real Locke, Locke having fallen down the, um, the, uh, the well to get to the donkey wheel. I don't... Again, there's, there is a slight difference, I will admit. Smokey would not help up living Locke, whereas here, Smokey is handing Ben the sheath in which there is the knife. It just kind of crossed my mind. There's not that kind of direct... You know, it's not the devil moving your hand. It's you moving your hand at the devil's, um, that you know, at the devil's whisper, that, that sort of thing. Um, again, the knife not being handed to Ben, the sheath handed to Ben. Ben takes the knife. Ben is not given the knife, if that makes sense, and if that's a hair that you care to split. With that, we have an act break, then some wisdom, some wonderful wisdom from Miles. Has it occurred to any of you that your buddy's actually going to cause the thing he says he's trying to prevent? Perhaps that little nuke is the incident. So maybe the best thing to do is nothing? I'm glad you all thought this through. It's a great question that he asks, and one that contains a nugget of truth. Uh, almost in opposition of the great switcheroo and borderline lie that is ahead of us, that of the flash sideways. Um, the lie is that it works somehow. Uh, what we have here is Miles kind of providing a quick stoking of the whatever happened, happened flame. No, flame pun intended, of course. Um, and with that, uh, Phil is on his way to uh, to help at the Swan construction site and the addition of Phil and company just served the very basic dramatic function of amping up the tension uh, within the episode. It's a reminder to us that this is a finale, of course, and uh, also a reminder that it's a finale that lasts up until the very, very last minute. With that, Radzinski vis-a-vis Phil sets up a perimeter, how official sounding, while Chang urges that people be moved out of there. With that, there's a quick series of uh, further official shots. Men digging, gauges in red, Chang concerned, Phil scanning the tree line. In the midst there, there's a few sneaky jack shots put in as he kind of makes his way 
past the perimeter. However, sneakier Phil notices Jack anyway, which certainly is a nice little refrain that of all people, it's Phil who notices him. Phil being that detail-oriented security guy. Um, Then the show kind of enjoys a fun little uh, bit of business with running and shooting, uh, including Jack taking the life of a Dharma goon. I guess that guy doesn't have a family to get back to, a future, uh, you know, none of the, those kind of lofty goals of, you know, if Claire gives up the baby, it's her choice. If, if Kate and I are to meet, then it's fate. Well, drama goon, <laughs> drama goon, Dharma goon, he bites it because uh, Jack says so. Uh, the whole scene here, though, it's typical Jack Bender goodness. Jack Bender, of course, directing this finale episode. Shaky cam, sparky missed shots. Um, and the scene only gets better with the, the Hurley Dharma van coming in with Sawyer, Kate, and Juliet. Guns a-blazing, tires screeching. Now, at this point, uh, it might be worth taking a quick look at the clock. Something that I absolutely positively remember from viewing this episode the very first time the night that it aired and looking at the clock it 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 almost makes things uh, nonsensical jack and company have now weaseled their way into the center of the work site sawyer pulls a gun on phil while jack smacks stuart rosinski uh, and suddenly our heroes appear to be in control with 14 minutes left to the episode Sure, we know if the bomb goes off, there'll be some sort of story still left. Of course, called season six. We knew at the time there would be a season six, but there literally feels like too much time for the Dharma storyline at this point in the episode. Again, not a criticism, just reliving that first-time viewer notion and this curious sense of pacing. Again, in no way a criticism, in no way a negative, but it's just this... This moment where you look at this episode and say, what in the world could possibly happen with 14 minutes left? It's less than 45 minutes long. We have one third of the episode left. And, you know, at the statue, they're already inside. And, you know, here at the Swan Station, they're they're as close to, to their goal or their attempt at their goal uh, as could possibly be. We literally, as first-time viewers, cannot, cannot anticipate what's to come. And that's certainly a credit to the writing, pacing, and so forth. And to stick with that first-time viewer mindset for just a moment, given that the bomb is rigged to explode on impact and all, something that Saeed has said so many times that it's just going to explode on impact, now might be a good time to maybe wonder if the writers were prepping us for some sort of misdirection. And with that, it is indeed showtime. Turn that damn thing off! What's the matter? Don't shut down! Why not? Something's pulling the drill down! We hit the pocket! With that, Jack takes one last look around. First to Kate, whose teary eyes tell him yes. 
and to Sawyer, who throws Phil aside and prepares for freedom. We see Juliet smiling at the sense of a new chance. And then, finally, we've reached the point where the bomb is dropped, and they all wait for... Absolutely nothing to happen. The great misdirect, the shocking realization that uh, (laughs) the plan has not worked. However, what is next is the real meat and potatoes of the scene, the magnetic surge, complete with that familiar sound of the, the energy pulling and pulling and pulling. At this point, the scene starts to zoom by. It's a masterful product of the the directing and the editing and, of course, the music. Just the pace is so incredibly fast. We see the drill tower collapsing, tools being pulled down. Indeed, at one point, the wounding of Chang's hand, which, of course, is the answer to his fake hand in some of the Dharma videos hearkening way back to, to season two. We also see Jack getting a smack to the head from an errant toolbox. We see Chang being freed by his son. Ah, we knew he'd be freed. He has to go on to make those videos. Radzinski starts to make a getaway in his Dharma Jeep. We, of course, know that he has to uh, fulfill fate by ending up in this very hatch, paying a monastic price for its construction and uh, perhaps its failure. Um, There's also just that spectacular stunt Uh, where the magnetism pulls the jeep uh, first back. It's kind of being pulled backwards in the gravel and the the wheels are are digging down. Uh, Then the magnetism really takes over and flips the jeep full on. Just a really, really, really nice stunt. Ditto on the the niceness, at least in the stunty execution of Phil's death. He's all set to fire upon his former boss, the former Sheriff Sawyer only to have first metal framework pin him, then rebar strike him. It's funny how uh, Phil kind of becomes this whipping boy. All he was trying to do was be the best security guy he could be. Uh, He was a great lieutenant for Sawyer, um, but of course more dedicated to the Dharma picture than than, uh, Sawyer was, of course. But alas, poor Phil. Um, And... It's at this point that we really are seeing the baddies start to pay a price, and the whole scene is really starting to smell of baddies lose and goodies win, and it's at that point when Juliet catches that chain to the leg. We have Kate jumping in to help Vin Sawyer. It's it's that romantic triangle certainly come together, all, all working for the same purpose at that point. And despite the the... the precarious position that Juliet is in the show hedges things that it really feels like it's just going to be another television near miss where our heroes win but where do you think you're going on me now we get those chains off hold on Hold on! I can't, I can't get it off! I got you! I can't! I can't reach for me! Hold on! I got you! Don't you leave me. 
It's okay. Don't you leave me. I love you. No, you don't let go. I love you, James. No. I love you so much. No! No, no, no! But Juliet pays a price. Kudos to the show for selling this quote-unquote death so well. It is so convincing. Uh, of course, it's not, it's not far off the mark. It's just a tad premature, uh, quite unfortunately. Um, but it, it, it really is just um, so convincingly sold especially given that the all the more heartbreaking and shocking uh, revelation when we see her broken and dying body in just a little bit will only take us uh, even further in our heartbreak, I think. But just a, such a, such a well-done scene, the music coming in there, the acting, it's just absolutely fantastic. And so much of this finale is, as I've said, a prologue to season six, and so too is this scene. Sawyer and Juliet have been separated in life, but only for a short time, really. After the act break, we are with the least of our storylines, Son and Richard on the beach, waiting. Though it ends up not being the least of our storylines. Nice little flip there, you know, how do you go from the presumed... Uh, <laughs> The presumed conclusion of the incident, Juliet dead, love dashed, <laughs> the bomb not working. What do, where, where could you possibly go next? It's smart of the show to make us go, oh, it's Son and Richard just sitting there. That's not very good. And they add to it because the others see Alana and company approach, Alana asking for a Ricardus. Another little bit to file away for next season, of course. Uh, she asks again, secret Jacob Club question, what lies in the shadow of the statue. Richard answers in Latin, poorly dubbed Latin, I might add. Uh, and then Alana looks relieved, probably not because of the poor sound quality of the dub, but rather because he's given the answer to the secret question. With that, uh, Alana promises uh, to open, finally, finally open that mystery box. The show milks this scene for all that it's worth. The slow, slow, slow reveal that it's locked in that box. And then after a short bit of explanation, Sun asks the question which is suddenly on all of our minds. Where did you find him? In the cargo hold of the plane we came here on. In a coffin. I don't understand. If this is Locke, who's in there? With that, a quick cut to not Locke and Ben inside the statue. The show wisely takes a bit of an anti-climax at this point. There's the fire-lit, quiet, presumably empty room, of course complete with Egyptian art. This is, of course, art that Jacob says uh, that he has uh, taken a long time to weave, uh, all the way from thread. We're, you know, 
quite simply reminded, of course, of uh, the uh, opening scene to Instant Part 1 with Jacob making that thread, working on the loom. Uh, this also is a reflection of, uh, of that opening scene because we have Locke, Smokey Locke, talking about having found the loophole. And this is a notable moment because it really is the first direct indication that uh, the mystery Locke is the man in black. We get a little reaction shot from Ben that is just absolutely lovely, so well-crafted. He kind of has this dawning idea for a moment that maybe, just maybe, this whole conflict might be bigger than him. It's Ben's egocentrism uh, on display and just that faintest realization that it's been used against him. Um, but I don't think that it really substantively crosses his mind. Indeed, it's stoked by Jacob reminding uh, him that uh, he has a choice. Um, however, with all that choice, with all that uh, egocentrism, and with all that stoking by Jacob, Ben's rage is about to spill out and out and out. You can do what he asks, or you can go. Leave us to discuss our issues oh so now after all this time you've decided to stop ignoring me 35 years i lived on this island and all i ever heard was your name over and over Richard would bring me your instructions, all those slips of paper, all those lists. And I never questioned anything. I did as I was told. But when I dared to ask to see you myself, I was told, you have to wait. You have to be patient. But when he asks to see you, he gets marched straight up here as if he was Moses. So, why him? Hmm? What was it that was so wrong with me? What about me? What about you? Jacob's uh, dying body is kicked into the fire there. We have a scene where Ben's central flaw has been revealed. And you know what? Perhaps it's our central flaw as a whole. This notion of what about me? This scene in so many ways is the, the mirror, the opposite to uh, the series finale in that multi-faith house of worship. 
here we're seeing me, 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 not we, we, we. And it's something that Smokey has manipulated to perfection. Ben has risen to the top through dramatic moves that uh, he justifies for the group, but always coincidentally keeps him at the top or reminds people why he's at the top. And um, here we see it, you know, Ben just making this huge move uh, to, to be in the service of not only the new, uh, the new Ben, the new leader, but also the, you know, take out the person who's wronged him. So, you know, so he feels again, it's, it's me, me, me. And, you know, I think at this point we're able to pause here and put together a, a large number of pieces. Jacob in incident part one, looking for the, the goodness to break the cycle. Uh, he dies, uh, returning to that conversation. They're coming, the candidates, the replacements for him. He has this weariness at the top of the scene. Uh, there's this notion of him having so much time. And I think that it's, ind it's indicative that Jacob wants out to a certain degree. He wants out the right way with the right successor, but he wants out. And we can also take some other pieces, the flashbacks of these two episodes, and they show uh, that they've really been in service of that idea that Jacob has been pushing and tweaking and tugging and pulling these candidates for a lifetime in order to get them on to 815 to propel them towards the island so that Jacob can pass the mantle. He knows that there's a plane full of candidates who are coming, at least those who've been whittled down to uh, the number in 1977, uh, the Oceanic Six, <laughs> Aaron notwithstanding, uh, among whom a replacement exists. And of course, as we'll learn in season six, no one is better than the others. They're all equal candidates, uh, at least in the eyes of Jacob. But of course, we're not there yet. There still is a season to go and a world of juxtapositional cathartic heartbreak ahead of us in this episode. Uh, we return to Jack, who... It, we essentially wake up with him. It's kind of this point of view shot. Um, he's sort of taking on a narrator role, at least for this uh, for this uh, bit that's left of the episode. He awakens to Kate pulling Sawyer back from the pit, Juliet having just fallen. As the rest of the tower falls into the pit, I think to the letter, as first-time viewers, we are all sure that Juliet is absolutely dead. But <laughs> Juliet is still alive, and she's eyeing the bomb. The incident may be over for Dharma, but it certainly isn't for us. As Juliet looks around, she of course grabs that rock, and the scene becomes this curious moment of perhaps not uh, uh, pondering predestination, but certainly accepting that uh, sometimes fate is fate, and sometimes when your number is up, your number is indeed up. It is a stunning, stunning, landmark, shocking end to the episode, end to the season, and 
one of the most daring ones because that ending essentially is no end. It's just the end of, of a chapter. It's the ultimate hook to leave us wondering, you know, mid-sentence, mid-scene, what in the world could possibly be next for, for the, the final season, the next and the last 17 episodes. It's the ultimate cliffhanger that on, a, on the surface offers us nothing, uh, no answers, no conclusion, but just this notion of, uh, of an ultimate sacrifice. It kind of takes the show, despite time travel and nuclear bombs and agelessness and magical islands and, you know, the battle of good and evil. What do we have here? We just have Juliet dying, making a decision to, uh, to confront her end bravely, to confront the facts bravely, to have hope that, you know, despite the debate over, you know, whether preventing the crash will happen, uh, despite the debate in the background as to whether this is the incident uh, that she's about to cause, to, to just have faith, whether it, whether it is, uh, you know, the, the best angels of virtue or not, but to have faith, to accept what truth you, you can know and to, to act on it. And this, this is why Juliet is so beloved, that, that at her lowest point, as life ebbs from her body, that um, it's just, it's just you know, this, this last uh, uh, statement of that life. And um, it's what an ending, what an ending. And on top of it, I always had this feeling that despite the fact that it's so open-ended, from the moment I saw it, I remember turning to my family in, I suppose it would be 2009, and saying, I don't understand everything. Clearly, we don't have all the answers, but I feel, I feel satisfied. I feel that an ending has happened, and I, I said it then, and I believe it now, that Incident, as a two-hour episode, is uh, functioning so wonderfully as a dry run for the finale and of course we'll discuss the finale uh in in these uh, 17 or 18 weeks from now but the the open-ended nature of this season right where we can admit there are not uh, um answers given unlike the finale where certainly there are answers you know there are answers uh, they are dead. They are moving on. They are together. Uh, this sort of thing. Yes, there's the um, there are the naysayers who, who who didn't care for the finale. I certainly am not among them. But to those that see too much open endedness in the finale, well, perhaps this is this is in the incident part two. This is the dry run for the finale because it certainly is open ended. That said, for my money, I mean, just what what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful finale. Really top-notch. Um, we've had characters die before, but never so selflessly. Yes, there was Charlie, of course, but that was also accepting a certain sense of fate. Um, Juliet just wants off and is prepared to leave, but then is just called to do what she believes is the right thing not called by Jacob, not called by God, not called by the president, not called by someone else, by a general, by someone in authority. She, she uh, makes the decision in her own mind and in her own soul that this is the right thing to do and follows through, um, right or wrong, hoping that it is the best. 
Uh, and I think that that, you know, that's the lesson of the episode. Make your decisions as best as you can. Hope that the sense of right and wrong that you live by is, uh, is the right one. And if not, well, at least you can, uh, if, if standing at the pearly gates uh, or, or whatever your, uh, your version or, or flavor or interpretation might be of that, that visage, um, you can at least explain yourself as to, to why you did what you thought is best. And uh, I think that's the lesson that, uh, the lesson that Juliet gives us at the, uh, the very brave end of this episode. That said, there certainly are a variety of opinions uh, about this episode. Uh, Dan Mulderlock on Twitter said that uh, he uh, personally found the incident to be the weakest season finale so far, saying that the Jacob stuff was good, but the rest was not. Uh, the hatch site stuff didn't do much for him. Uh, he says it was like they ran out of money, and that was the best uh, that they could do. Um we already saw them working on it, but the incident itself came off as underwhelming, especially compared to the hatch implosion. Well, when you put it like that, I have to admit it's a little it's a little difficult to argue with the fact that it isn't um I don't know, it doesn't have the totality that the hatch implosion and the the ripping apart and the striking down of this season-long set and the season-long mystery uh has. I think to a certain degree, it's kind of an apples and oranges argument, in my opinion. I think as well, I get a big kick out of all the time that we spent in the hatch, wondering about the hatch, the blast door map, who was there, who was this Radzinski guy, so on and so forth. The fact that we kind of back into the hatch mythology from season two by way of its origin story in season four. I think that's cool. I really, I, I dig it. It works for me. Now, is the incident uh, looked at as parts one and two? Is it flawless? No. I mean, my biggest concern there would be would be over Juliet. It really seems like they wanted to get to the end point of Juliet sacrificing herself so that our characters could remain um, unhappy, remain at an unfulfilled point. Well, when I say our characters, I mean Sawyer. Um, and that they were prepared to kill her off so that Sawyer could be mourning her and Sawyer could be reunited with her in season six. So you kind of backtrack from there and untwist her from a very functional 50-50 partnership with Sawyer uh, during the happy Dharma days. So, you know, I'm not crazy about what they do there with, uh, with her. I think there is, there's something to be said that this finale is quite action-oriented and not as emotional-oriented. Now, most of the finales obviously have a ton of uh, a ton of action in them, but when you think of the emotional climax of season one, Locke and Jack, who's right, man of science, man of faith, is the hatch just a room? Is it their salvation? Is it Pandora's box? So on and so forth. You know, the, the action is served by the... Um, uh, the the emotional nature of it with this you know what is the emotional nature they want to prevent the plane from landing it's very much in service of the flash sideways of course they had them thought out at this point sketched out at this point to do flash sideways to to confuse us wonderfully and frustratingly so for for all of season six so 
the bomb going off is a bit of a, a, a of a you know backwards math, uh, just as as getting to Juliet's death is. Um, it's, I mean, there are shades of season two, the, the striking of the Dharma world again. Um, does it does that contribute to being familiar? I say familiar in a good way. I'm sure others would disagree. Anyhow, last bit of communication here is another email from Tim, uh, who who had quite a bit to say. I, I hope he doesn't take any offense. I, I had to cut a bit down just uh, just for time and size, but uh, he has some great stuff. And uh, here we go. He says, "My only gripe regarding Jack's motivations in this episode is the explanation he gives." you really get a sense that he is not telling the complete truth when he says his main motivation for blowing up the bomb is because of Kate. If you wanted my opinion on Jack's motivations, it's to prove Locke wrong. Three years ago, Locke told Jack in season one that coming to the island was their destiny. I think that this bomb was a chance for Jack to, to prove himself, uh, prove to himself more than anyone else that this wasn't the case. I'll pause Tim's words there to say, I have a difficult time arguing against that. I agree it's not some greatly driven uh, reason that Jack has. So either it's a weakness in the writing or something is going on in the character's mind that we're not entirely privy to. I like the idea of Jack headed towards man of faith, but then of course if he's a man of faith, why can't you just hang out on the beach for the rest, you know, for the next chunk of time uh, when you arrive in 1977, or just chill with Dharma and and let it go, or chill with the others, and, and you know, whatever it is, why must there be this action? And as soon as the the out is given to erase this all, why must he act? Um, if it's if it's because of some sort of lingering sense of self uh, affirmation, you know that the the ever wrong, ever charging forward doctor in season one is actually who Jack is, and he's just gotten lost along the way, no pun intended, uh, in the last three years, but that he wants to return to being that 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 person. Um, I buy it. Anyhow, Tim goes on to say, as I said in last week's episode, the season five finale is full of callbacks to the earlier seasons. A very subtle, or not so subtle, depending on how you look at it, callback was the theme of coming together against a common threat. The other Losties could have easily just let Jack blow up the bomb alone, but the fact that they realized that nobody does it alone, and that they are in this together, was a very refreshing callback to a very important theme that has permeated throughout Lost. And I just don't mean them backing up Jack with the shootout scene. When Jack dropped the bomb, he hoped it would automatically detonate. The fact that it was Juliet pounding the bomb in the final moments of the episode is what made it work. An excellent point there from Jack. Certainly, it's 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 living together. It's trying to die together uh, in order to, I suppose, ironically, live alone. But um, with Jack's at least partially started or partially stated, uh, partially believed in notion that if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, and you will nonetheless meet which, of course, certainly is foreshadowing Jack's complete transformation to a man of faith by the end of the series and uh, the fact that with the faith in your loved one, you will indeed find them again, uh, as uh, as we see time and time again in uh, 
in the lead up to the uh, to that uh, multi faith house of worship scene. Uh, anyhow, Tim goes on to say another thing that uh, continued is the eventual eventual deterioration of Juliet. My heart just goes out to her. She is grasping for some sort of uh, some form of happiness with Sawyer, and the fact that Sawyer, in her eyes, just keeps choosing Kate is disappointing to her. It's very sad. Tim goes on to say, I really liked that this episode had a uh, really trifecta of cliffhangers. When initially watching this, I was unsure which cliffhanger was more satisfying to me as a viewer. Because going in, I didn't know if Ben was really going to stab Jacob or not. This was very intense stuff. Also, the ending with the bomb explosion at the end was a huge WTF cliffhanger that made you mad when you realized the show was not coming back until at least January. Tim, you certainly are are accurate there. There's a bunch of storylines concluded here, set you know, set up for next season. And I don't know, for my money, that ending of just it it, you know, no pun intended, the ending just blows you away because you literally cannot imagine what will happen next. You know there's an entire season of the show. So the idea that 815 is just gonna land and what? You know, you couldn't even forecast, well, somehow it lands and they live their life. We get to see how their lives end up um, because that seems with no end point, which is part of the scam of it all. You're saying, well, where is this headed? Oh, it's kind of cool that we're back in season one where they all crisscross and Kate and Claire share a cab. Whoopie-doo. It, of course, has its purpose. Um, and then the fact that it also simultaneously... I mean, not. I mean, when I say it's simultaneous, obviously the bomb explosion does not work. Does not let eight fifteen land. Story wise, it appears to work. It propels us to that flash sideways. Uh, the fact then that it it it's simultaneous to storily, if that's a word, to dramatically working to propel to the uh, to the flash sideways. It also works to uh, literally propel the characters back to uh, two thousand seven. The the then modern time um it is something that i think you could not particularly imagine because i don't think that's how nuclear bombs work except for on fantastic islands with magnetism issues and you know time jumping and whatnot anyhow tim concludes by saying a very nice finale that moved things along nicely by wrapping up things while at the same time setting things up for the premiere of season six so much things going for it which is what Grace great episodes of Lost do. So thank you very much for Tim for your for your email. Thank you Dan for your comments on Twitter. A reminder, you know what episodes are ahead of us. If you'd like to comment ahead, feel free. Uh, I as I've said before, I don't. I make a point not to read uh, much of an email if it's about an episode that I have yet to watch or yet to take my notes on, just because I don't want to. Don't want to rip off your thoughts as my thoughts. You know, want to be able to keep them separate. Then we can converse after the episode as we did here. But uh, you know, all are welcome. We, of course, as we hit the uh, one hour and 11 second mark, having just passed it, we still have a bit to go. The Lostpedia bit for the to see what I've uh, missed. Uh, quite a decent list here, too. So buckle in. First... Richard Alpert responded uh, to the question, what lies in the shadow of the statue in Latin with Ile qui nos omne servatet, servabit. Anyhow, that could translate as he who will protect slash save us all. 
More accurate translations might be either that man who will serve us all or that which will serve us all, if the noun in question is the masculine gender. It wraps up by saying the enhanced version of this episode says the intended translation is he who will save us all. So, okay. Uh, moving on, Jacob physically touches each of the 815 survivors he visits in his flashbacks, along with other characters. Certainly a nice touch there. To me, as I said earlier, it's it's evocative. Not directly, but it's, it's evocative in my mind of just that... Um, I don't know, a Christian influence to it all. Um, the, uh, you know, the being able to get a touch of uh, touch of Christ's cloak and, and the effect that that would have on the sick, the laying of hands, uh, the physicality of it just certainly seems uh, at least Christian to me. I'm sure that it, it appears in other religions as well. So just adding to that quasi-religious nature of, uh, of Jacob. Anyhow, Lostpedia goes on to say, and here's a, a rather sad note of trivia, I would argue. This is the last time Kate, Sawyer, Saeed, Locke, Jin, Sun, Jack, Juliet, and Hurley would ever have flashbacks. Moving on, when Jack tries to get the Apollo bar from the vending machine, there's a candy bar with the name Lindos to the right of it. This is an apparent reference, of course, to Damon Lindelof. Also, the items that the police officer gives back to Hurley when he gets released from the prison, money, a pen, and candy, are the same things Jacob has given to Kate, Sawyer, and Jack, which is a really nice touch. Um, I'm assuming that's on purpose, and I can only read one thing into that, further supporting the idea that Hurley is at the top of the list of the candidates. Yes, the, Jacob tells them that they're all equal in season six, but, you know, here he is personally recruiting Hurley to come back to the island within 24 hours, and there Hurley has the things which echo previous Jacob missions. So, quite nice there. Um, continuing on with, what, about five bits of trivia more, the hieroglyphs on the panels are revealed to documents many cultures... Uh, pardon me, are revealed to document many cultures that lived on the island for thousands of years, according to the enhanced episode. Also, for the second season finale in a row, a deceased lock is revealed inside a container at the end of the episode. The first was in There's No Place Like Home, part two and three. Uh, I really like that bit of trivia that they did, in a certain sense, they did the same ending twice. Uh, also, there's uh, the bit of trivia that this episode has the longest guest cast list of any episode in Lost. They also say uh, the opening credits list part one as written by Lindelof and Cuse, and part two written by Cuse and Lindelof. Penultimately, this is the last appearance of Rose, Bernard, and Vincent on the island until the end where their fates following the incident are revealed. And our last bit of trivia for Incident Part 2, for the incident as a whole, and indeed for Season 5, is as follows. This is the final episode to contain flashbacks from characters who were on Oceanic 815. Certainly we suggested that a bit earlier with the people by name, but on that note, the end of 815 flashbacks has now, uh, has now come to us, as has indeed the end of the podcast. Uh, next week... I will take an opportunity to take one last look back over season five 
and preview season six. And then the week after that, we are, of course, off to the races with LAX and uh, jumping right into season six, a season that I'm most certainly looking forward to, um, a season that there's probably more season six episodes that I've only seen the once than others. Uh, certainly there are exceptions, Abiturno, Across the Sea. Um, I'll admit I've only seen the finale once. It was so, so incredibly moving at the end that I just kind of, you know, have kept that, uh, have kept that feeling with me of, um, of what it was like when, when uh, the episode was over and the TV went off and there was tears on my cheek. And uh, I'm sure that's a story I'll tell in further detail uh, in, uh, in the episodes to come. But uh, we have some great, great lost ahead of us for these final, uh, th th this final stretch of episodes. So with that, everybody, thank you for listening. As always, we've uh, made it so very, very far in, uh, you know, through all these episodes. Uh, thank you to everybody for uh, particularly in these last two episodes for sharing feedback. There's just been this sudden uptick and it's wonderful. And uh, here we are concluding the 103rd episode of the series so uh not exactly a, a a milestone of 50 or 100 or 108 but uh well we finished season five and that's uh that's a milestone to be sure so thank you all again for listening talk to you all again next week take care and bye bye